Hello. Just a few words to say before we listen to the fourth class in Chris Bertel's series. It's the final one this week. If you haven't already done so, you might like to go back and listen to the first three. I want to thank Chris for creating such a very interesting and stimulating series. Now, before we get into the material for today, a couple of quick thoughts. Firstly, bear in mind that as Chris goes into the issues that he's talking about today, the issues themselves are important. But there's a broader, broader perspective that he's stimulating us to think about, which is perhaps more significant even than the issues, which is how do we think about passages in the Bible which are controversial, about which the modern world would uh, they'd question our sanity for holding on to our faith in these areas. And what Chris is asking us to do is to re-examine our assumptions where perhaps science and archaeology contradicts what we think the biblical record is telling us, how do we handle that conflict? How do we handle that, that just thinking that through? And how do we, then do we engage with these issues with our friends who might be asking us questions? You believe that? How can you believe that? It contradicts science. It contradicts archaeology. It, and how do we handle that in a way that is gentle uh, but well-informed? And I want to thank Chris for tackling some of these tricky areas. And as you listen today, I hope that you will find material which will not only strengthen your faith, because the biblical record is reliable, not only strengthen your faith, but also equip you for helping your friends who currently don't share your faith to come and share that faith. Without any further ado, let me hand you over to Chris. Hello, this is Chris. Welcome to this, the last in my series, Narrow Road, Broad Mind, and thank you for watching. So uh, in this series, I've been trying to encourage us to see that questioning our traditional interpretations of scripture is in fact a positive exercise and potentially faith building. And I hope I've demonstrated that in the three previous classes by suggesting alternative inter interpretations that are not in conflict with science, unlike the traditional interpretations. And our main focus so far has been chapters 1 to 11 of Genesis, as indeed it is today. Um, and we are looking today at the meaning of the image of God. So the term is introduced here in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Interestingly, the, the term only occurs three times in the Old Testament and all within this section at the beginning of Genesis. And in relation to humans, there are only two references in the New Testament. So there's a, a relative or a distinct lack of discussion about the term in the Bible. And as a result, a lot of the consideration about what the term means doesn't really relate to the text or the context in which it's found. So you'll probably be familiar with ideas such as it's uh, about having a soul, about the power to reason or the ability to imitate God, something which differentiates us from the other species. 
But Richard Milton, in this uh, excellent book, The Liberating Image, has looked again at what it means to be the image of God. And not only by uh, focusing on the biblical text, but um, particularly making use of uh, looking at the way the term is used outside of the Bible at the same time in Mesopotamia and Egypt. So in the previous class, I suggested an interpretation whereby Genesis 2 should be seen as a sequel to Genesis 1, um, meaning that Adam and Eve are not to be understood as the first humans referred to in chapter 1. And interestingly, in Genesis 2, where we find Adam and Eve, there is no reference to the image of God. So it's a term that relates to all humans, which would obviously include Adam and Eve, but not uh, beginning with them. And here in Genesis 5 verse 3 we find uh, one, the second reference to the, the term when Adam had lived 150 year, years, 30 years sorry, he became the father of a son in his likeness according to his image and named him Seth. So uh, we see here the implication that even after the fall the image is carried from Adam to his son. Likewise, after the flood, Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God made humankind. So again, the implication that despite sin and the corruption and the curse that it entailed, it didn't uh, remove the status of image bearer from humans. So there's two things uh, to consider when we're trying to relook at what it means to be uh, made in God's image. First of all, uh, this association with dominion. So let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion. So the very next line after the notion of humans in the image of God is a reference to dominion over what God has already created. And also there's the intriguing use of the term our by God. Let's make humankind in our image. And 20th century exegesis has detected here a royal flavour relating to the heavenly court. And although it's tempting for us as Christians and with our understanding of the Trinity to read the Trinity into that reference, we have to bear in mind that that would have made no sense to Moses or anyone else in the Old Testament. And it does bear a striking similarity to the mixture of singular and plural in Isaiah's vision of the heavenly court in Isaiah 6. If you look at verse 8, it says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Likewise, in Genesis, humankind in our image, so God created humankind in his image. And it appears here that God is. Uh, it would certainly be consistent that God in Genesis, like in Isaiah, is addressing the heavenly court of angels, etc. So there's a possible suggestion there, not only the linkage between dominion and the heavenly or royal court, but also the suggestion that maybe the to be the image bearer of God and the role that uh, relates to is somewhat akin to the role of angels. So there's a, a reference here, um, which again associates dominion and royalty. 
uh, from Psalm 8. And I'll read from the NRSV initially. What are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honour. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. So the thing to notice here is crowned with glory and honour. Crowned, who gets crowned? Royalty, kings. And you've given them dominion. So we see that royal association with dominion. I've put the NIV as well because there's disagreement over how the word Elohim should be translated. It's normally translated as God, but um, several translations, including the NIV, think it more appropriate in this context to, uh, to translate it as angels. Whichever one of those is correct, it's clear that in the view of David here, that humans have a very high status in, uh, in God's eyes. So the Bible seems to suggest then that the image of God is related to human dominion over the earth. And given that Israel is formed against the backdrop of Mesopotamian dominance in the same way that Greek culture formed the background to the New Testament. So Middleton in his book um, looks at the way that human origins are described and in particular how the term image of God is used in Mesopotamian writing in particular, also uh, Egyptian, um, in order to gain a better understanding of how and why it has been used in the Bible. And Doug Jacobi has recently co-authored this book called um, Origins, which uh, gives a much more comprehensive view of Genesis 1 to 11 than um, I've been looking at or indeed any of the books I've referred to thus far which have focused on in on particular details at great depth so if you if you want a comprehensive um, look without going into too much academic style depth then this is a great place to start and interestingly Doug's conclusion of what it means to be the image of God is very similar to that that Middleton um, arrives at but it is interesting and I think it's quite uh, profound when we actually do as Middleton has done and look at its usage, the term of the uh, image of God in these external texts. So just for a bit of background, this green area uh, on this slide is what we call the Fertile Crescent where the first civilizations began and the what is regarded as the first simulation, uh, civilization is down here labelled as uh, Sumer, just up above the Persian Gulf that was followed by um, the Akkadian civilization both Sumerian and Akkadian are languages rather than nationalities but these developed into the Babylonian and uh, Assyrian kingdoms to the north which form the backdrop to the Old Testament and the whole region is called Mesopotamia meso meaning between or middle and potami meaning rivers so Mesopotamia, meaning effectively land between rivers, they being the Tigris and the Euphrates. And significantly, the way that these two rivers were able to sustain these civilizations was through the construction of a network of irrigation uh, canals. And this is significant because they were labor intensive, not only in their construction, but their maintenance in clearing, uh, clearing them of silt. So we see here in um, one creation myth from uh, Babylon from about the 18th century 
BC, which includes a flood narrative, the gods are complaining about having to clear out these irrigation canals. And so they plea for the creation of humans. So it says, create a human being that he may bear the yoke. Let him bear the yoke, the task of Enlil. Let man assume the drudgery of God. So we see here that humans being created in order to relieve the burden of God. So basically created as servants. There's a very similar flavor to this other um, Babylonian text called the Enuma Elish. I won't um, read it out, but you can pause it and, uh, and read it if you like. So generally within uh, the Sumero-Cardian uh, creation myths, we see humans' uh, role defined um, through three main tasks. First of all, there's the building and maintaining of temples in which the gods live, the gods' homes. Then there's um, irrigation and agriculture in order to provide food for the gods. And then there's the performance of cultic sacrifices in order to actually give the gods their meals. So we find a hierarchical society in which the majority of the population is forced into maintaining a royal priestly elite which sits at the top. How do they justify this? Well, in their um, mythology, uh, creation had first to uh, subdue chaos. So there was these forces of chaos um, which were like a malignant force. And here in this um, picture, we see the Babylonian sun god destroying a chaos monster. And the idea is that once chaos has been subdued, it must be constantly re- uh, held at, at bay. And this is done by maintaining the status quo. If you don't maintain the status quo, there's always a danger that chaos is going to rear its ugly head. So this status quo is maintained through the rule of divinely appointed kings and priests. So in Mesopotamia and also in Egypt, kings and priest kings are actually described as the image of God. So the term in their context designates the status of kings and their dominion that they they take from that role and justifies the servitude of everyone else to them. In other words, the term image of God serves to legitimate the power of the royal priestly elite over the masses, so it is said to maintain order. Remarkably, in Genesis, on the other hand, the image of God applies to all humans, which is an extraordinary democratization of the Mesopotamian usage. And when we allow as we are here, Genesis to be read in its cultural setting, we see a remarkable statement about the worth of every human in a very stark contrast to the way that um, the status and rights of humans were perceived in Israel's neighbours. And because of a lot of similarities in the texts found in Genesis and those of Babylon and uh, Mesopotamia as a whole, Israel is accused of brazenly taking texts from other people and rewriting them with a Yahweh focus. But what we can see now is that this isn't just a surreptitious theft or appropriation of someone else's backstory, but rather that Israel has deliberately taken these texts and rewritten them in such a way as to condemn the society that they support um, and the exploitation that they entail. 
So our focus should actually be not where did they get these stories from, but to focus on the differences between them. If they are rebuking uh, Mesopotamian society, what is the book of Genesis suggesting as the alternative model? And we see this underlined in the way that the term is, is used here in, in 127. If you look at it, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. That second line seems superfluous. Doesn't the first line say all we need to know? And if we really feel it's important to have the second line, wouldn't it have made more sense, as I put below, to have had, so God created humankind in his image. In his image, he created them. But the fact that it is constructed in this rather awkward way, using the literal, literal term image of God, suggests the point is being made, that the author doesn't want us to miss the point that this is the same term that's used in Mesopotamia, where it applies only to kings and priest kings. And yet here in Genesis, we find it relating to every human being. So we get this um, comparison then between Mesopotamia and Israel, where Mesopotamian society is all about a uh, hierarchy with a divinely appointed royal at the top and the maintain maintenance of status quo greatly to his advantage. Whereas in Israel, we find the people warned not to have a king and the prophets continually holding kings and rulers to account. In Mesopotamia, we have kings um, enforcing their uh, sovereignty and uh, placing statutes uh, statues all over their dominion to remind people who's in charge whereas in uh, the bible we find statues uh, of that nature banned graven images banned completely and humans are the only legitimate image of god in mesopotamia the people serve the gods the people provide food for the gods whereas in the bible god provides food for his people in 1966, uh, an American historian wrote a paper entitled The Historic Root of Our Ecological Crisis. And he identified the cause of the ecological crisis he was referring to as being the Western worldview, which he said, probably quite rightly, was based on Genesis and its Judeo-Christian um, foundations. And his criticism was that this um, Genesis passages that we've looked at about the image of God invite humans to exploit the Earth's resources, viewing nature as subject to us rather than something to be nurtured and safeguarded by us. And whatever crisis may have existed in 1966, I'm not sure, but um, we certainly do seem to have um, an ecological crisis now. We're very much focused on the virus at the moment, but uh, not so long ago, it was all about floods and extreme weather patterns and human exploitation of the Earth's resources seems to have played a major part in that. And Lynn White may be right that the exploitation has been legitimised by an interpretation of Genesis, but is that the correct one? Is Genesis really inviting us to exploit the Earth? If we look at uh, the seven-day account, um, we can see some interesting things Middleton observes about the nature of God. It's long been observed that on days one to three, God creates spaces through separating and dividing. And in days four to six, 
he fills those spaces. But Middleton points out it's not as simple as that because God doesn't directly fill the spaces. Rather, he invites what he's already created to fill those spaces. So we see these four examples. Let the earth put forth vegetation. Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures. Be fruitful and multiply. Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind. So God has imbued his creation with creative power. He's made all the species so that they can participate in the creative act themselves through reproduction. So we see here a God who is sharing his creativity with his creation. And also Milton points out that um, Hebrew has a, a number of tenses that we don't have in English, one of which is the jussive tense, which apparently implies invitation rather than coercion. I believe it um, is in use in uh, German. So a recipe which might say take three eggs would be in the jussive sense because it's not coercive. You're not under any legal obligation to use three eggs. But if you want to make the recipe correctly, it's inviting you to do so. And when God issues these decrees, there's an implication of uh, invitation to join him and participate rather than an implication of coercion. Also, the creativity God has placed in humans leads to the development here we see from Genesis 4 of things like music and craftsmanship. So God is like a parent who wants to see his children flourish. He's not jealous. He doesn't want to take all the glory and he's not threatened by seeing others flourish. Whereas in the Mesopotamian literature, any creative skill is attributed to a, a God. This is the God who gave music. This is the God who gave craftsmanship. It doesn't come innately in humans. So although humans are commissioned to fill and subdue, there is nothing Middleton points out said about ruling over other humans. And God's attitude to kings that I've just described would appear to support this. God's not after human hierarchy. And if we look at the way that God rules in the generous way, in the desire to see us flourish, then it would seem that God is giving us here a model of human dominion that should uh, allow other humans the freedom to flourish so that we should replicate this loving, self-giving, parental type of dominion we see exercised by God. One chapter in John Walton's book about Adam and Eve that I was talking about last week was actually written by um, my favourite theologian N.T. Wright and that's actually why I bought the book and it's typically brilliant in my opinion. And we can now see not only the example of leadership and human dominion that Jesus set us in his life, but how his death and resurrection have impacted our commission of being God's image bearers. So we talked last time about the archetypes of Adam and Jesus. Adam's sin derailed God's um, intention for creation, but God through Abraham started a rescue plan in order to undo the consequence of sin which was death so paul contrasts the effect of adam the first man and the effect of jesus the second man and here in romans 5 17 we see that the consequence of adam's sin was that death reigned and the verse begins if because of the one man's trespass death exercised dominion through that one so that's the effect of 
Adam. So as Wright points out, we would surely expect the verse to then go on to bring in Jesus to say, how much more will life exercise dominion through the one man, Jesus? But it's very interesting to look at what it actually does say. And before we read the whole verse, let's just look at this bit in orange, because this is one of these very long sentences where you can get a bit lost. So we'll just um, look at the, the orange bit. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. So when I read it, I'll just insert Christians there. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. So just to make it a bit clearer, I'll see Christians. If because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will Christians exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So we see here that the lifting of the curse by Jesus is associated with human dominion, which seems to support our interpretation of what it means to be the image bearers of God, that it means that we were designated to have dominion. So Adam's sin meant that man's dominion was cursed and God's intention for human dominion is regained in Jesus. So Paul's Adam theology is actually kingdom of God theology. We go back to a passage we saw earlier in Psalm Eight, yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honour. And again, uh, we see uh, Jesus' impact on this. If we read from Romans 8, 19 to 21. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay, and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we see here the um, idea that salvation is about far more than just us being saved so we can go to heaven. It's about us being saved, as Tom Wright puts it, um, humans being put to rights so the world can be put to rights. So the effect of Jesus is to, to restore our capability of having dominion over the earth so that uh, the consequence of sin is not just that it separated us from God, but it also placed a curse over creation. So creation couldn't thrive and flourish in the way that God intended. And that has been put right through Jesus or will ultimately be put right through the, the full resurrection. So the question for us now then is, what does that mean for, for the here and now? How do we perform the role of being the God's image bearers now? We see in here in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So Jesus is where Adam was meant to be, or at least where Adam was meant to be heading. But if the human commission is to be image bearers, uh, if that has essentially been put on track through Jesus, how do we exercise dominion in the kingdom of God today? So I'm not going to go into that too much because my focus here is on Genesis. But just in conclusion, God has delegated humans to preside over and extend the ordered state he had made. Because of sin, that role was misused in order to exploit other humans and creation as a whole. Interestingly, um, Middleton reflects that Adam only names Eve as though she were an animal after the fall and questions whether the subjugation of women may be simply uh, a, a consequence of 
sin rather than um, a paradigm that we should look to. So the paradigms we should look to would be Genesis 1 and 2 from the way that God um, is creator and exercises dominion and then the model of Jesus in the kingdom of God. So only in Jesus has the image of God been born as intended. He was the fullness of God fully realized. But if the image relates to dominion, then it relates to the kingdom of God. So if you are now going to um, break into groups for discussions, here's some questions you may wish to, um, to discuss. So does the way I've presented the term image bearers or the way I presented Middleton's interpretation of it, does this change your view of, of what the term means? Does it impact your view of the environment and ecology and uh, our role as stewards of creation? How does our role as image bearers relate to the kingdom of God? And for me, it takes us right back to the things that those of us in Thames Valley were going through with Malcolm in terms of the kingdom of God and the Sermon on the Mount. If the coming of the kingdom is both now and not yet, in what way, if any, do we or should we currently exercise dominion? And lastly, when we look at the, the whole theme of these classes, which is about not being afraid to question our interpretations, being willing to look back and see if we can understand them more fully or in a, a better or more helpful way, how should we feel about re-examining other areas? The ones I've looked at are ones where there's a, a, an apparent conflict with the scientific account and I think support is gained for those interpretations when that conflict is removed but there's other areas where it's not like that they may stand alone there's a conflict with perceptions in society maybe but how should we feel about re-examining something like the role of women in the light of this other than that I will leave you to um, to think of any other questions you may um, prefer to but thank you very much for watching and I hope you've enjoyed the series thank you Well, I hope what you heard from Chris was helpful. Let me just repeat his questions in case you didn't get them. The questions he gave us at the end there were these. Does this, what he's been talking about today, does this change your view of what it means to be God's image bearers? God's image bearers. Secondly, does this impact on your view of ecology and environmentalism? Uh, that's an area very dear to my heart. I've just recorded a, a podcast for Douglas Jacobi, which is going up on his site in maybe three weeks' time on the issue of theology and ecology. And my wife's also uh, done two podcasts on a similar theme. They'll be going up on Doug's site, so you can look out for those. That's uh, douglasjacobi.com.org.com. And you can find them there. Anyway, that's his second question. Thirdly, how does our role as image bearers relate to the kingdom of God? Fourthly, if the coming of the kingdom is both now and not yet, in what way, if any, do we or should we currently exercise dominion? What does that really mean to exercise dominion? And fifthly, how should we feel about re-examining other areas, areas Chris hasn't dealt with in detail in this class, 
or in this series, but how should we feel about re-examining other areas such as the role of women, which is a big one, and we will be talking more about that in the future. Those are his questions. You don't need to answer all of them in one discussion, but they can be something to think about, reflect on, pray about, and talk about together. Hope that's helpful. If you want more information about any of these classes, do contact us via the website, or you can email me directly, malcolm at malcolmcox.org. And I hope what you found here has blessed you, strengthened your faith, and given you more reasons to trust our amazing God. Once again, thanks to Chris Bertels for doing an excellent series, very thought-provoking. Take care, and God bless. Mm-hmm.